It is amazing the passion that sports fans express. Isn't it amazing how fans will sing and shout and scream and jump up and down and cry, punch the air, hug each other, kiss the badge, go through absolute agony when their team uh, loses. And all because they are passionate for the glory of their team. And I can understand at least a little bit of that. I can get excited when someone is kicking a ball into a net or carrying it across the line or hitting it between the poles. I can jump up and down. But is that really what we should be most passionate about? Is that supposed to be our greatest obsession? Or is there something else, someone else, that we should be willing to follow, that we should be willing to honour, that we should be willing to praise with our whole hearts. Well, clearly Jesus believed that there was. So we're going to read from John chapter 2, and verse 12, down to verse 25 uh, this morning. So John chapter 2, verse 12, says this. After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and his and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts he found men sell, selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle, He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had had spoken. Now while he was in in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. In this gospel, uh, John mentions three Passover feasts. So we have the one in chapter 2 that we just read about, then we have another one in chapter 6, and then we have the one at the end, near the end of the, of the book, uh, when, when Jesus was crucified. So there's three Passover feasts. And these Passovers were one of the three annual festivals that every, every Jewish man was expected to attend. Attend in Jerusalem. 
And this Passover feast celebrated the deliverance of the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt and and their birth as a nation. And at its heart was the sacrifice of a lamb, which looked back to the original Passover lambs killed on the night that Israel escaped Egypt. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, the blood of the lamb was put on the, the tops and the sides of the door posts. Because God had promised, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. But as we've also seen, this Passover didn't just look back at that great rescue mission. It also pointed forward to the ultimate rescue mission. When Jesus would rescue us from slavery to sin and to death through the sacrifice of himself. Remember John the Baptist, who when he saw Jesus said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so it was really significant that when the, it was almost time for the, the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Jesus came to celebrate the festival that for centuries had pointed to his arrival and ultimately to his death on the cross. And so this was an incredibly busy time in the city of Jerusalem. And especially in the temple where the animals were sacrificed. And that was the reason that we read in verse 14 that in the temple courts, Jesus found men selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. In principle, there was nothing wrong with all of this. Because these animals were required for the visiting pilgrims in Jerusalem, so that they could make the necessary sacrifices. They couldn't bring their animals with them, so they could purchase them there. So they could then sacrifice them and take part of the Passover festival. And also every Jew over 19 years old had to make his yearly temple tax payment. It was half a shekel. But they weren't allowed to pay this tax in their own currency, which was seen as defiled. So they had to change it into the sanctuary shekel. And that's what these money changers were doing. Providing this service to change the the defiled currency into the sanctuary currency. But when Jesus saw all of this, he was far from happy. Look at verse 15. He made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. Now this doesn't fit in with many people's idea of Jesus. You know, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You know, the, 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 the peace-loving pacifist, the friend to everybody, the person who's just nice and loving and caring and soft and gentle. So what was going on? Why did Jesus come and drive them all out? Why did he get that whip and and force them all out? Why did Jesus respond so passionately, so violently to what was going on here? What are we supposed to learn from this about Jesus? 
Well, of course, this is not a general endorsement of violence. Jesus did not come to start an armed rebellion. He did not come to use force to sort out all of the problems of this world. In fact, Jesus taught the opposite, didn't he? And he modelled the opposite. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he promised blessings to the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. And Jesus refused to fight, or even allow his followers to fight, to protect himself. And the reason he gave to Pilate for that is, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. So Jesus is not trying to start a violent rebellion to overthrow the establishment here. This is not him trying to to rouse up the masses and, and start a fight. Instead, this is just an expression of his zeal for God's house. When his disciples saw this, they remembered what was written in Psalm 69. Zeal for your house will consume me. This is why Jesus reacted so violently and cleared that temple. He was zealous, deeply concerned, fiercely passionate about the temple. About God's house. Now I think there's something attractive in people who are wholeheartedly committed to their cause. People who are passionate about something. There's something attractive to them in that. But at the same time, on the other side of it, we also know that zeal that is not based on truth is a dangerous thing. When the Apostle Paul visited Ephesus, a violent riot broke out in that city. All because of their, their, their zeal for their religion. They saw Christianity as a threat to the the glory of their religion, and so they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. That was passion. But it was passion for a false god. It's zeal. But it's zeal without knowledge. And we can see the dangers of that today in our world. You think of Islamic terrorists or other religious fanatics. The danger of that. Or criminal gangs. Or warring factions. Or even just football hooligans. They are all zealous for their cause. Whether it's their team or their religion or their wealth. But their zeal is misplaced. It's not based on what is true or what is good. Or what is important. That actually was the problem with the Jewish nation as a whole. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 10. He says this. They are zealous for God. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. They are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. The Jews were passionate about God. 
But because they didn't know the gospel, because they didn't know the salvation that comes through Christ alone, their passion was dangerous. Their passion led them to crucify God's Son. Their passion led them to persecute the church. And Paul, of course, knew all about this because he used to be one of them. Before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he described himself as for zeal, persecuting the church. That's what he was all about. Trying to stop the spread of Christianity. So zeal without knowledge is dangerous. But the zeal that Jesus expressed here was not that kind of misplaced zeal without knowledge. Instead, Jesus was acting on what is true and what is good and what is important. He was dealing with some real problems here. Let me just pick out three of them. One of them was distraction. The temple was supposed to be a place of communion with God. Supposed to be a place where people could come to express the repentance of their sins. They could come to learn more about God. Where they could pray to Him. And hear about hear hear from Him. But how could anybody do this? If it was just like a busy shopping mall. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Imagine all the, the bleating of sheep and the, the, the mooing of, camp, of the, the, the cows or the cattle. All that noise going on. And to make it worse was, this was all happening in the court of the Gentiles. The outer court of the temple area. That was the place where the nations, those who were not Jews, could come and hear about the one true and living God. This place was supposed to be a place of evangelism. But instead of hearing about the truth, instead of being able to reach out for God, the Gentiles would just have heard all the business of making money. And to make it even worse, this was being done dishonestly. In the temple area, people were being ripped off. The animals, they came from the temple herds or flocks. And they were just outrageously overpriced. And the commission for exchanging money was something like 50%. So the temple got rich. And so when Jesus cleared the temple again, near the end of his ministry, he criticised not just the fact... That they were all distracting the people from the main, the main, uh, the main cause of the, why the temple was there. But also, he criticized the dishonesty of those who were doing it. Mark 11 says this, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. But worst of all, all of this was happening in God's house. Jesus said, how dare you turn my father's house into a market. This temple was the place where God had promised to dwell with his people. 
when Solomon built this, the original temple on this site, he said, I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, <clears throat> a place for you to dwell forever. This was supposed to be the place where God met with his people and lived among them. Where God was supposed to be worshipped. But the distraction and the dishonesty was dishonouring God's name. And it's that that offended Jesus the most. Why was that? Why did this dishonour to God's name offend Jesus the most? Well, because Jesus' primary passion His ultimate goal was to glorify his Father. At the start of his prayer in John 17, verse 1, he says, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. So this is why Jesus was so passionate about clearing the temple. In the very place where God's name should have been honoured, should have been glorified, it was being dishonoured for selfish and materialistic reasons. And as Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot. So how can we apply this today? How do we take this incident in Jesus' life and bring it into our lives and learn something from it that we can put into practice in our lives? Because it's not just automatic, because you have to ask the question, where is God's house today? And how can we honour it? Well, we can't go to the temple and honour it because the temple was destroyed. About AD 70. So what are we to honour? What are we to, to, to learn from this incident? What was Jesus pointing to? Well, I think he was pointing to a new way to God. When people saw Jesus clearing this temple, they challenged him. They couldn't criticise him for his actions, because I guess they were justified. It was obvious. And so they questioned his right to do it. So they demanded, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Now, of course, Jesus could have done a miraculous sign, couldn't he? Last week we were looking at Jesus actually performing one of those miraculous signs in Cana of Galilee. And as a result of his miraculous signs, Jesus, some people put their faith in Jesus. See verse 23? Many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus knew that that kind of superficial response to miracles is not always wholehearted commitment to him. That superficial response to miracles is not always saving faith. says verse 24, Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. Jesus didn't get, a, didn't get carried away with the popularity that when he did a miracle and people were flocking around him, he didn't say, wow, that's amazing, that's great. 
Because he knew that many of these people would turn and leave him. Once they realised that he wasn't the Messiah that they were expecting or that they wanted. And so when people came to him demanding more signs to prove his authority, he knew that it wasn't because they were genuinely seeking after him. Instead, he knew that they'd already rejected him. Matthew 12 says this, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. Doesn't mean it's wrong to ask God to do an amazing miracle in our lives, like to heal somebody who's really sick or to, or to fix an issue that, that seems beyond our uh, capability to sort out. That's not what it means. It means if you're standing saying, God, I'm not going to believe in you unless you do this, or unless you do that. That reveals the hardness of our hearts and the rebelliousness against God. And so Jesus didn't give them a sign as they wanted. He gave them a different kind of sign. Verse 19. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now the Jews obviously completely misunderstood this. Uh, Herod the Great had started to rebuild this temple 46 years previously. uh, And the work was still ongoing. It would go on for a number of years after this as well. So they couldn't understand how Jesus could possibly rebuild the temple in three days. Of course, Jesus wasn't talking about a construction of stone or wood. The temple he'd spoken of was his body. This was a prediction of Jesus' death on the cross and his power to rise from the dead in three days. His resurrection would be the ultimate sign of his authority. Why? Well, because his resurrection would be the ultimate declaration of his identity. Paul wrote in in Romans chapter 1 that Jesus was declared with power to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection of, the, of Jesus declares who he is. He's the Son of God. And that's why he called his body a temple. His body was the dwelling place of God. His body was the place where men and women could meet with God. Because as we read in chapter 1 of this, of this gospel, the, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And so in clearing that temple, Jesus was pointing forward to the end of that whole Jewish Old Testament system. The Jerusalem temple, the Levitical priests, the ornamental robes, the rituals, the ceremonies, the continual annual sacrifices is no longer needed. Instead, we are invited to simply come to Christ. Where we can meet with God. 
where we can know Him in our lives, where we can experience His love, where we can pour out our hearts to Him, where we can receive the forgiveness of sins, bought with His own precious blood. So Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2 about that whole Jewish system, that these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So today, we don't come to a temple. We don't come to a temple with altars, or ceremonies, or sacrifices. If we put our faith in Christ, then we don't need those shadows. Because we have the reality of coming into the presence of God through the finished work of Christ. But even more than that, we have the amazing privilege of becoming the temple of God. This is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He wrote to the individual Christians in Corinth and he said, do, not, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God lives within us. And then he wrote to the church as a community, as a body of believers. And he said, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's Spirit lives in you. Today, God does not live in sacred buildings. Instead, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit living in us through our faith in Christ, we as individual Christians, and especially as a community of God's people, we are God's dwelling place. We are where God lives. We are God's house. And so this is what we need to learn from this passage. If we are going to be passionate about something in our lives, then Jesus doesn't want us to be like the Jews in the temple. He doesn't want us to be distracted from the most important of things. He doesn't want us to be dishonest, trying to cover up our own selfish and materialistic greed. Neither does he want us to dishonor the God who deserves all the honor and the praise. Instead, Jesus wants us to be passionate about what's most important. To be passionate about God's house. That's not being passionate about a building or an organization or a denomination. That's not what it's about. Instead, three little things just to finish. It's about being passionate about our people. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So as followers of Jesus, we should love the church. And we should be willing to do everything that we can to see it grow and to see it flourish and for it to be all that God had called it to be. So we're called to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And we're called that each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others. 
If we're going to be passionate about God's house, then we need to be passionate about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And seek to love them, and support them, and encourage them, and serve them, and stand with them in what we're called to do. Secondly, it's about being passionate about our personal responsibility. After declaring that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul challenged us by saying this, Therefore, honour God with your body. If we truly are the dwelling place of God, then we need to be wholehearted in our rejection of sin and our commitment to God. We need to seek to honour God in everything that we do, not just in a Sunday morning. Because when we go to work on Monday morning, when we go downtown, when we go home, we are still the temple of the living God. This is a 24-7 call to honour God. But ultimately, this is about being passionate about one person. Jesus' body is the temple of God. He is God with us. He is the one who loved us. The one who gave himself up for us. And so our passion should be centered on him. We should say with Paul, for to me, to live is Christ. This is who we should seek to follow. This is who we should seek to honor. This is who we should seek to praise with everything that we are and with everything that we have.